Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Last week, we saw Paul describe his feelings of anguish as he considered his fellow Israelites who had not believed in Jesus. He was concerned about them for he knew that they needed to understand that being born into a certain family did not necessarily make a person one of God's people. He reminded his Jewish readers that though they had been chosen by God to be the nation through whom the Messiah would come, not every physical descendant of Abraham was a part of the true Israel. He reminded them that God had made selections within Abraham's descendants of a particular line through whom he would send his Messiah, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau. And that there was always a remnant who followed God by faith as Abraham had done and had remained faithful to him. Paul emphasized that as Lord of all, God has the right to do as he pleases. And if he had hardened the hearts of some Jews to the gospel, it was really only so that the door might be opened for the Gentiles to come in. The inclusion of people from every tribe and tongue had always been a part of God's plan. And because Paul was speaking primarily to those who were Jewish here, he knew it was best to support his argument with quotations from their very own prophets. So in Romans 9 verses 25 to 29, Paul quotes from two of those prophets to make his point. The first one was Hosea, who spoke God's words about the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called the sons of the living God. These words, spoken hundreds of years before Paul's day, show that the Lord would lovingly make the Gentiles part of his people, even calling them his sons though they had no relationship with him previously. Paul then quoted from the prophet Isaiah concerning Israel, that only a remnant, in other words, a small number of Israel would be saved and that it was only because of God's mercy. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. So though the number of ethnic Israelites was vast, not all would be saved, for not all would accept Jesus as Savior. However, Paul wanted them to recognize God's mercy in his dealings with Israel, and he quotes again from the prophet in verse 29. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. In truth, Paul reminds them that God could have completely destroyed the Jews for their sin, as he had done Sodom and Gomorrah in the past, but he had not. 
In the last verses of chapter 9, Paul draws an important contrast between the ways of these two different groups and how they had responded to God. What then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursue it not by faith, but as if it were by works. The Gentiles had not pursued a righteousness based on the observance of the law of Moses, and yet because they came to believe in Jesus Christ, they had obtained a righteousness from God nonetheless. By contrast, The Jews had thought that they could be saved by their own efforts. They had believed that their good work somehow put God into their debt and that he owed them salvation because of what they did. It was a terrible mistake on their part because they forgot about the faith exhibited by their ancestor Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so they'd stopped looking for the substitute sacrifice that God would provide, the Saviour who would die in their place. When Christ came then, they failed to recognize him, and as Paul puts it, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The Old Testament contains many references to a stone that the New Testament writers very clearly identify with Jesus. Notice here that Paul reveals the rock that made the resistant Jews fall was a person, for they stumbled over Jesus Christ being the only way that they could be saved. God had always intended for people to build their lives on Christ, and thus rejection of him is the very thing that brings us to ruin. We are all brought to this one decision. What will you do with Christ? Will you build your life upon him or not? To reject the salvation that only he can offer causes a person to stumble and fall and ultimately to be condemned. By contrast, Paul declares that the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The shame in view here is really the end-time condemnation when Christ returns. Those who trust in Jesus will receive eternal life and not suffer the ruin of those who reject him. They are secure. In the opening verses of Romans 10, Paul speaks again of his love for his Jewish brethren, grieving that their misplaced trust in their own efforts was actually keeping them from the salvation offered in Christ. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness." Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes.
Paul knew that what he had been saying was particularly difficult for Jewish people who'd thought that they had an advantage over others. Though he'd been critical of their continued preference for the law over Christ, Paul's comments were not motivated by anger, but rather by his deep love for his people. And what a great example we see in him of speaking the truth in love, knowing that though it would be hard for Jewish people to hear this message, it would really be far worse for them not to hear it. Paul pulled no punches. They needed to know that Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, meaning that Christ is the end of the law and he is its fulfillment. His death and resurrection brought that old covenant to an end and instituted something better, the new covenant that is based on grace, in which his righteousness is available for all those who believe Jew and Gentile alike. To make his point, Paul again quoted from the Old Testament scriptures in verse 5. He says, Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. Paul quotes Leviticus 18 verse 5 here, urging that those who want to obtain righteousness through the law should remember what Moses said about it, that they had an obligation to keep all of the law perfectly. He knew that their consciences would convict them of their inability to do so. And we remember James's words in James chapter 2 verse 10, that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So then, what hope is there for lawbreakers? Paul answered with the next quotes. Verse 6, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess. In other words, profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our hope lies in the righteousness of God that comes by faith. It says that salvation does not depend on a person's own strength. You see, Paul is saying it is not by our own effort that Christ was brought to the earth from heaven, and nor was it by our power that he was raised from the dead. God has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. It's available right here and right now. 
This would have been especially true for the Jews since they were desperately searching for their Messiah to visibly come down from heaven in power and live forever. Many of us who believe were led to Christ with the words from verses 9 through 11, and they really are very simple, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Those who would belong to God must be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is their Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios, and it was filled with significance. It not only was used of one who was master over another, it was the title that was given to all Roman emperors. The Greeks also used this word before each of their gods' names. So thus, to give the title Curios to Christ meant that he was not only above all other gods that mankind had chosen to worship, but that he was also above Caesar himself, a powerful statement seeing as Paul was writing to those in Rome. And perhaps most importantly, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures uses the word kurios for the divine name Yahweh, which was the name of God that was so holy it could not even be spoken. Thus, when we confess Jesus as Lord, as kurios, we are acknowledging that Christ is the eternal all-holy God himself, and we are taking our place under him as his creature. He is our master and he is our ruler. Paul also says that we must believe in our hearts that Jesus has risen from the dead and that he is alive forevermore. Why is that an essential element in receiving Christ? Paul stated in 1 Corinthians that if Christ isn't risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. For there to be any hope of eternal life, sin and death have to be conquered, and Christ's resurrection proves that both have been dealt with. Not only that, but because he lives, we can know him. We do not merely know about Jesus as an historical figure who lived in the past. We are able to have a relationship with him in the present. Paul points out that though we believe with our hearts, our spoken confession is also vital to our salvation. In other words, the world around us needs to know whose side we're on. We must be willing to proclaim that we are his, and that may take courage, especially when we consider all that the Christians were facing in Rome at that time. People everywhere are called to put their faith in Christ rather than in their own efforts. But what about those people who've never heard God's message? Paul asks in verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
It is true, Paul says, that people can't believe in the one that they've heard nothing about. And so he communicates an urgent invitation to all Christians everywhere to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and also to support the ministries that get the gospel out. Paul appreciated that some might hesitate to evangelize others for fear of rejection and likely persecution. And so, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, he reminds us that from heaven's viewpoint, there is nothing more beautiful than the feet of one who brings God's message of salvation and forgiveness to others. Simply put, It is a glorious and blessed thing to share the good news. The gospel must go out, but that does not mean that everyone will accept its message. For even the Jews had rejected God's word about Christ given through the prophets of the Old Testament. Verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Paul insisted that you might be able to excuse someone for not knowing something they had never been told. However, this was not the case with God's people, the Jews. God had spoken of the coming Savior through his prophets, and their declaration had gone out to the ends of the world. But the Jewish people had not really paid attention to God's message. And you know, this is important for us to remember also in our our own lives. For faith to grow, we have to truly hear Christ's word. However, though we are all born with ears, it sometimes seems our ears do not listen. Jesus warned us of this very thing in the gospel. How many times he would say to people, let him who has ears to hear, hear. In other words, we must choose to really hear the message in a way that will transform our lives. God declares in his word that obedience is what proves that we've truly heard his word, and choosing to obey is always a matter of our free will. No one could say Israel had not had an opportunity to hear, but Paul realized that there might be another excuse offered for their failure to believe. He says in verse 19, again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Here, Paul reminds them that they'd actually had many opportunities to understand God's purposes. In fact, God had told Moses that he would call the Gentiles into relationship with him in the hopes that the jealousy and anger that that would cause on Israel's part would somehow prompt them to seek out God themselves. Then Paul points to what the prophet Isaiah said. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. 
Like Moses, Isaiah indicates that the Gentiles would welcome the gospel and come to know the love of God, even though he had not been part of their heritage. But by contrast, though God had continually held out his hands to his disobedient and obstinate people, they were willfully ignoring his pleas. Israel had heard, but they had chosen not to understand. They truly were without excuse. As Paul moves into the 11th chapter of Romans, he begins to address the question of what Israel's rejection of Christ means for them as a nation. Now, we need to remember that not everyone who was physically descended from Abraham is considered a part of Israel. The state or nation of Israel was different to spiritual Israel, the true children of Abraham to whom righteousness was credited by faith. And we also need to understand that the fate of every Israelite as an individual is not revealed in God's word. God does not show favoritism and there are no special exemptions from following Jesus just because a person is from a Jewish background. The nation of Israel as a whole had repeatedly rebelled against God and had finally stumbled over Christ God's son, who'd been sent to redeem them. By contrast, though, a small group within that nation, a remnant, if you will, believed with their father Abraham in the righteousness to come through the sacrifice of Christ. And Paul begins to speak of this faithful remnant within the Jewish nation of whom he was one in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Paul was clear God had not rejected his people, but rather most of them had rejected him. There were, however, a small number of people who truly did follow God, who, like Paul, were descendants from Abraham in both a physical and a spiritual sense. And he reminded his Jewish listeners of what God had told the prophet Elijah when he was questioning God's faithfulness to his people in a time of real persecution under evil King Ahab and his horrible wife Jezebel. Hiding in fear for his life, 
Elijah had complained to God, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. But the Lord assured Elijah that he had not failed his people. He had reserved for himself a small group of 7,000 who had not abandoned their faith in God. And God was doing the same thing in Paul's day. Paul wanted his readers to understand that there never was a time and never would be a time when the whole Jewish nation had been faithful to God. However, within the nation there had always been a remnant who had never forsaken their loyalty to the Lord or compromised their faith in him. No group of people, whether a particular nation or a specific church will be saved as a whole. In reality, we are each individually accountable for our own response to God. As individuals, we must each surrender to him. We cannot inherit righteousness from our ancestors. Choosing to follow Christ as Lord is a personal decision that we each must make. So what of those who had been kept from a personal relationship with God because of their rigid because of their rigid focus on the law of Moses? Paul asks in verse 7, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened, so that they cannot see, and their backs be bent for ever. Though many Jews appeared to earnestly be seeking God, they had somehow been drawn off into pride and self-righteousness. God allowed them to fall into a kind of lazy sleep, and drifting ever deeper into spiritual blindness, they also became increasingly deaf to his voice. When Paul quotes King David here saying that their table becomes a snare and a trap, he's conveying the idea that in a spiritual sense, the Jews were sitting feasting comfortably together, but that their very sense of safety and complacency had become their ruin. The enemy had lulled them into such a false sense of security, they never imagined that they were at risk of losing their position with God. We see how this can happen to anyone. If people go their own way long enough, if they continue in their sin, they become complacent and continue to go their own way, ignorant of God's many appeals. The question on Paul's mind was, was it too late for the Jewish people? Were they to be cut off from God after all? He continues in verse 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? 
Paul declares that God is not done with the Jews yet, and he has a purpose in what is happening. Their sin, their rejection of the Messiah, had been used by God to spread the message of salvation to others, as those who followed Christ were scattered across the empire. In that way, the Jews' loss had really led to great gain for the Gentiles, who eagerly received the message of salvation instead. If the Jews' loss had led to such riches for the Gentiles, Paul could only wonder how glorious it will be when God's plan is fully completed, when the Jewish people who desire a relationship with Christ as the Gentiles have accept Christ as their Messiah. Paul then addresses the Gentiles in his audience, declaring in verse 13, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He wanted them to know that he was committed to his ministry for them, not only for their sake, but because he knew that the Gentiles' response might just cause his Jewish brothers and sisters to desire salvation themselves. Though Paul doesn't say when or how, he does reveal that God will not give up on his covenant people. And if the Jews' rejection of Christ had brought eternal life to the rest of the world, one could hardly imagine the blessing that would occur with their final acceptance of him. And you know, that's where we'll have to leave off for today. Next time, Paul will speak about the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, as being like an amazing olive tree. And believe me, you won't want to miss it. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.